0: Life says me, far as I be knowing Haven't time to snack around in comfort all the year So
1: when
2: we get a little
1: time before our boat gets going We head on down to the library and this is what we hear Come on, on in, look all, look all around.
3: around,
0: there's, there's plenty for to see, to see. Make, Make your own self, right up on I love the library, library.
3: Look all around, there's plenty for to see.
0: Make your own
3: self
1: right, on my love, the library.
0: So, if you're on a fishing boat, or if you be towing, maybe get a book online and check it out for free.
3: Grab something great to
0: That's never slowing Most enjoy the library I think for many
1: years Yes, most enjoy the library As long as tide is
2: flowing So head on down to the library And this is what you'll
0: hear Come on, on in, look all around There's plenty for to see Make your own stuff right, right at home I love the Come library Come on in, look, look all around There's plenty for your own home. You'll love the
2: Welcome to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. That was Alec and Nicole McMurrin singing an original piece created for the Petersburg Public Library. Today, I've compiled excerpts from several listening projects done over the years. The listening project seeks to create an archive of oral history and share our diversity. If you are interested in participating, please contact me, Kari Peterson, at the Petersburg Public Library, 772-3349, extension 4. So coming up on today's show, we'll have stories from Gerald Lind, Paul Bowen, Jane Smith and Gina Esposito, Steve Barry, Sally Reamer, Patty Simpson, and Ike Roundtree. <sighs>
4: Everyone in this community has a story. The Public Library's Listening Project seeks to honor our common ground and our diversity by creating an archive of oral histories. We encourage people to inquire and listen to each other's life experiences and set aside some time for an interview, which will be recorded and saved for posterity at the Public Library. In this excerpt, Gerald Lynn tells his daughter Sherry Otness about a glorious morning in April and what he learned from experience about migrating birds got a couple hummingbird stories that you have that nobody else has, and I would hope that you could
0: tell those. Oh, yeah. During one of those years when I would, before I got on the Louis M, as far as fishing goes, I had to have a job if I could get one. Anyway, Lloyd, my uncle Swanson, had a piece of property over here that would be on 7th and Fram and I had worked with him so mm-hmm. Lloyd says you finish up so we were making forms for cement around the piling we dug out around the pilings that were driven and we had the ditches and I had to get up and do this at four o'clock or so in the morning I'd get up and go over and start because the rest of the day I had to be taking care of work on the boat, whatever. So this one particular morning was, you know, this is all transpiring in the last of April because everybody started fishing in first of May. And so you left just before that. So this is in a nice morning, very nice, bright morning. And I was down on my knees half the time or down in the ditch there and nailing boards and planks together when I heard this tremendous noise in the sky, very familiar, meaning when I looked up the biggest cloud of cranes that I've ever seen before or since. They were, I don't know how many thousand there were, just a tremendous number of them. This cloud, I was looking up, and it was coming down slowly, and as it it was banking around and going in a huge circle, as it did that, it split into two groups. And they kept coming down, and the two started following one another, and as they come down, one group sat on the muskeg, on the other side of the hill, that the water tank is sitting on up there, and there were the trees that were up there then were just brush trees. There wasn't any real amount of trees because around the tank was all clear and open, and they'd so that's, had.
4: That's where the ball field is now, pretty much.
0: Well, the ball field is just north of it, across yeah. the street. But the one group landed on the other side on the muskeg, and this other, the second group landed like where 8th Street is, that's one block away, that whole area was covered solid with cranes. They landed, and you remember that they make a lot of noise when they're going over way up there. When they're down here, there's a lot of noise. And all of a sudden, I'm accosted by birds, hummingbirds, Hundreds of them, not ten, twenty. They were everywhere. They were hovering in front of my face and zinging around, and they were over everywhere. Just, so I assumed that those geysers come in on those cranes. They had flown in on their own passenger liners, or, or whatever you want to call those cranes. Nobody could. Explain why there was such a cloud of hummingbirds all of a sudden when there such an unusual group of birds landing all of a sudden from nowhere. So that sensed it with me. I thought that's what they do.
4: In this interview, Paul Bowen tells the story about the time his wife Neva lost her wedding ring aboard their troller, the Chinook. Uh,
5: this is Paul Bowen. And uh, I'd like to uh, tell you a short Alaska story, and I'll just title it, The Wedding Ring and the Boat. And this story uh, takes place over a period of time from 1968 to about 1995. My family uh, and I had just acquired our second boat in 1968, called the Chinook. It's a 36-foot trunk troller, trunk cabin. I, I know a number of people remember those boats, and there are a few around. It was, of course, wood, powered by a, a six-cylinder Chrysler Crown, and I bought it for $5,000 from a, a person in Wrangell. We started uh, actually trolling with this boat in Tabankoff. We also eventually moved over to Gidney Harbor. It was sometime in the 19... 19- uh 70s early that we were anchored in one of the bays i believe at temikoff again and neba was a wonderful mechanic and uh we were anchored up the weather wasn't too good and we were missing a few um sounds like a few spots in our spark plug conditions uh, that were occurring quite often and so she liked to tinker with those and i didn't so she was changing spark plugs and she bent down um, through the many times as you are in an engine, and came up real fast uh, with a movement where her the uh, part of the engine and her necklace, where her wedding ring was attached to, broke loose and it just snapped, and it tinkled down past the engine, and went in the bilge. She found that her fingers would swell uh, quite a bit after some fish cleaning and other rigors of uh, where Usually isn't where you're going to ring on all the time. So that's why it was on her neck. And uh, I said, uh, no no problem. We sent the kids ashore. The kids are my two daughters, Yvette and Nina. They'd like to row ashore and, and beach comb and take their dog. And we had a pet goose. They'd take them ashore. And uh, it was a little break for us. Anyway, but it wasn't too. Uh, much of a problem. I knew I'd, I knew I'd find it down in the bilge, and after groping down there a little while in this trunk cabin trawler built in 1929, I wasn't the only thing. It wasn't the only thing that was down there. There were lots of, of, of debris, and and it was a. It was a, a type of boat that had a wooden skin, so you didn't have a tote. You had wood skins that were uh, where you'd put your ice and then your fish. And of course, the ice would melt, and the fish and the oil changes through the years. Before I had it, plus my own, uh, would accumulate. So it wasn't. It was a pretty grimy job, and I couldn't come up with it except other than dirty elbows and arms. So I said, "Well, we'll we'll get it when we get to town," and uh, anchored up at the end of the summer. And I went down there seriously uh, and, and uh, equipped now to get that bilge and find the ring. And uh, I never found it. Of course, I got even another ring. But this was a big gold ring I bought in Albuquerque when we first met. Anyway, um, going fast forward now. in 1980s, we um, sold the boat, a Ken Beard, and then it kind of disappeared uh, to some other owners uh, at that time, uh, just a year or two before that time, Cynthia and uh, Sig uh, Mateson, uh acquired the beachcomber, and, and in any event, it wound up on their beach in front of the beachcomber for since about 85 or 86. Then that was the end of it, and it slowly disintegrated. If you went out pretty soon, all you could see was just the Chrysler Crown finally. And that's where it was resting until Kurt Kernvick, a geology student of mine, 1989, 1990. He bought a uh, a very good mineral detector, and he came in one day after school and he says, "Where can I find some gold?" I said, "Well, that's a, a good question. I uh, I've been thinking and trying to do this same thing for years. I'll tell you where one place you can, but." Uh, this gold is my, as a ring that my wife had, and it was in the Chinook. And I don't know if you recall, but there was a derelict of a pieces of a boat out there at uh, in front of uh, the beachcomber. And I'd suggest that you go out there and take your, uh, your a mineral detector. Now, this was 1995, and uh, I didn't think much more about it till about two days later. He came into my geology room. He'd been out there, and he says, is this the ring, Mr. Bowen, of course. And I looked it up, and it was.
4: In this interview excerpt, Jane Smith and Gina Esposito talk about working as archaeologists for the Forest Service in southeast Alaska.
6: We're looking for remains that were left over by human beings. And so we're we're after um, bits and tools or what they left behind when they were, you know, Butchering a deer or collecting you know shellfish from the beach, or if they were you know harvesting some type of bark from a tree, you know we're looking for that kind of thing,
4: and would you say that you can find that up here, even though the weather's not great for preservation it's is it trickier up here because it's not dry?
6: I would say it's trickier because a lot of the things will deteriorate, and plant materials will deteriorate, however. Gina and I, one of our favorite things is to find shell middens. And shell middens are the discarded shells that people collected and then, you know, harvested the meat from. And they threw them out around their houses. And the shells are, um, they act as a neutralizer to the sediments in the soil. And so the sediments aren't as acidic. And so things are preserved in shell midden. So you can find bone and fiber stuff in shell midden. Whereas if it was not in a shell midden, it would rot.
3: Yeah, and another type site type that we find and record a lot of is um, prehistoric wood stake fish traps or stone fish traps, and the tidal sediments are really good at preserving, you know, the remains of the fish traps. Um, yeah, we've been on, every, you know,
6: just about every island in central southeast, and we've circumnavigated QU Island in a 14-foot whaler off the Chugach ranger boat, you know, so it would mm-hmm. be staged. But we were in that little whaler yeah. going into every bay and zooming all around. Mm-hmm. There's shell midden sites everywhere, Julie, and in prom- almost every little cove with a nice beach. Well,
3: we've just, we've had really great times. We've gone, we've, ca- we've maybe there's been a few heavy boat uh, one of I, you know, with when we were out on the Sitka Ranger boat, and I oh, yeah, uh, got a... really sick from seasickness. We were out on um outer enough mm-hmm. and we that was uh, we got into the sixteen to twenty foot seas on the Ranger on the Sitka Ranger boat, and we couldn't turn around. It was kind of scary. I mean, we were safe because we had a great skipper, but we just had to we had to ride it out, and we got mm-hmm. and it was hours and hours and hours. And
6: but a good one. Remember when we went to this village site, and there had been a recent survey because the village site was being going to be a sea alaska property and so we just we were going to go there and make sure that the forest service had surveyed around the proper you know site area and i remember we walked into the woods and it was i don't know it was pretty early in the morning and it was still it was overcast and there's these wolves started howling do you remember that Mm. There were these big house depressions, and we were on this old village oh, yeah. site, and that was really cool. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And then we had these soil augers, and if you blow into the end of the soil auger, which is how we find our shell midden sites, it will it will go.
3: Yeah, blowing into them doesn't make <laughs> you find the, um, <laughs> the, the shell midden site. You have to put those into the ground, but... For fun, we often blow into the handles. We were make blowing cool whistle, we were making the whistle, and then the wolves were you know howling. I remember that, and then the same trip, I remember recording a shell midden, and all those river otters were swimming by, like hiking experience. Hiking, but we've done a lot of our share of whacking through the brushy uh, hillsides of. Um, like Huyou Island, for instance, where you can't barely get through it, and sitting with the rain pouring on us. We're, we're out in all kinds of weather, but, but the Tongass is amazing, and we, we've had such, God, we've had a lot of good experiences.
2: If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. Today, I've compiled excerpts from several listening projects done over the years, If you are interested in participating, please contact me, Kari Peterson, at the Petersburg Public Library, 772-3349, extension 4.
4: Everyone in this community has a story. The Public Library's Listening Project seeks to honor our common ground and our diversity by creating an archive of oral histories. We encourage people to inquire and to listen to each other's life experiences, and set aside some time for an interview, which will be recorded and saved for posterity at the public library. In this excerpt, Steve Barry tells me about an unexpected ending to one of his whale watching charters in the summer of 1995.
7: You're out there watching the whales. You go out. It's it was about six in the evening, and um, so now we're out at the um, out at Big Creek. And here's this group of whales, and I see the one with a cut tail. And it's not the one that breached, but it was with this other one. And and that other one kind of came over and did this dive. And I told everybody on board, get ready. That whale is going to breach. You know how it is. You're sitting there waiting, and you're waiting. It seems like you're waiting a long time. Well, all of a sudden, the whale came up right next to the boat and did this pirouette. And as it came down, it took its pectoral fin and went right across the boat, right exactly where um, the six people were standing
4: so they were hit by that pectoral nobody fin nobody
7: got hit by the pectoral fin, and I, you know all I remember is people, I see bodies going every which way into the water. There was only three of them that hit the water, but it looked like to me you know and of course my the rail of my boat explodes off it 's gone away, you know the with the boats almost tipping over, and then finally it rights itself, you know, and, <clears throat> and I'm running around trying to get the, the life ring and everything. Luckily, it was flat, calm, and sunny. Nice day, and, and uh, oh, uh, Nicky Graham was one of the, and for the people out there, they, you know, Nikki was probably 70-ish. And from England, uh, although she lived here, they ran their boat Lonely Bird up here, and she would go out with me. Anyway, she comes up and she looks at the other two people, and she goes, "Oh, I've always wanted to swim with the whales." And that diffused. You know, the people are going, "Well, you know, rather than that full-blown tear, it gave it calmed them down long enough for me to get them around and get them out of the water." You know, and then I so I got them out of the water, and everybody's kind of we're all kind of sitting there and wondering what the heck just happened
4: did the whale swim away
7: yeah wasn't I was more worried about my people you know it's kind of like taking a beer can and crushing it on your forehead you know for a whale to smack on a big aluminum boat like that and uh,
4: it looked like it in the picture
7: yeah I've said to a lot of people over the years you know if a whale wants to jump on my boat and kill me that's fine but don't hurt my customers or my clients right you know don't it's not supposed to be a uh, contact sport no it's highly
4: discouraged
7: yeah it's you know you know and at that time that was the first one ever documented that had happened in the United States it had happened elsewhere in the world but it was the first one I just you know it it happens more regular now you know that they're hitting sailboats. There's so many more boats, and there's so many more whales.
4: Sherry got that picture because she reflex grabbed the camera, right?
7: Well, I said this whale's going to breathe, so everybody's got. She had her camera up there, and you know, waiting, looking at the water, and all of a sudden, boom! It was right there. So that she got the picture coming down, and luckily, it was a little Olympus, because it was that was when we still used. Film. You remember oh, that yeah. stuff we called film? Yeah.
4: But did that camera go in the water with
7: her? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I can remember, because it was on my birthday, she called me up and said, Steve, I got a picture I think you might want to see. Yeah. Some of
4: the barnacles fell off the whale.
7: Yeah, there was blubber and barnacles on the boat.
4: Yeah, I still have one of those barnacles. Yeah. I froze it and saved it. So,
7: you don't have it frozen now, though, do you? Yeah. It's still frozen. Mm-hmm. Oh, because you can, uh, I think there's a way you can clean them up.
4: Well, after being frozen that many years, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't smell anymore. <laughs> it doesn't smell at
7: all, so. No. I should have saved them all.
4: Well, I'll, I'll dig out the freezer and find it See? for you. <laughs> it's down there and the, somewhere.
7: Cause, and the blubber, I remember picking up, and I, I, was, looking at, I was looking at my boat thinking it was um, silicone, you know, black silicone, like something you'd because it looked like a rubber, you know, Uh and then I realized, no, that's... Whale skin. Whale skin, yeah. Wow. I wonder what story the whale told. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should have seen that one. That really got him.
4: In this excerpt, Sally Reamer tells about how her sons came home from work and encouraged her to come get a job at the cannery.
1: They came home one day early in August and said, Mom, you really ought to go down to the cannery. They need help. There are too many fish. And so I went down there, and Roscoe Hoyeson was the one who outfitted me. He said that. They had had an accident that morning, and one of the workers' husband had been hurt on a boat. And so she had to leave. And he said, we need you up in the can loft. So he took me upstairs in the can loft at PFI, and they taught me how to make flat cans round. And then we got to have coffee and cookies. And then they taught me to sit on another machine where I... am put the bottoms on the round cans and I couldn't do it and pretty soon I had cans flying all over the can loft and they had to shut down the can line downstairs in the the cannery where the fish were being put in the cans because I made such a mess of it and I thought for sure when I went home for dinner they'd fired me but they said no you come back. I came back after dinner and they said we now need you on the fish house floor. Well I didn't realize they meant literally. They took me in there, fixed me up with all kinds of rain gear, and Carol Swanson grabbed a hold of my shoulder and dragged me into this place where they were. They had faucets and they had fish coming around on a round table, and I was supposed to look at the guy next to me and do what he was doing. Well, he was picking up a fish by the gills and turning it over and scraping blood out of the middle, and I thought, that doesn't look all that hard. I can do that. Well, little did I know, every time I picked up a fish and tried to do that, the fish went flying, and it probably took me an hour or two before I could really do a fish efficiently, and I was just getting pretty good at it when she came by about midnight and said, now we need you over in the other can line. We need you to straighten fish, and by this time at night, you know, I'm getting a little dingy, and I thought I didn't know they were crooked. So, they stood me next to this really big guy who was standing by a hopper that came as far as I knew from the sky. I had no idea how these fish got into the hopper. I'd never seen that part of the operation. But he would pull on a chain, and these huge fish would come flooding down into this bin. And my job was to take each one and head them all in the same direction so they could go into the chink. And the iron chink would cut their heads off. Well... I'd been doing that quite successfully and felt this is probably where I'll be all summer, you know, this is good. when the lady next to me bumped me and pointed, because it's so noisy you can't talk in there, she said, you need to pull the chain and let the fish out. Well, knowing how big the guy was, I just yanked on that chain with all my hundred pounds of weight at the time. And the next thing I knew, I was flat on the floor of the cannery covered in fish, slime, and blood. So that was my first day at the cannery. (laughs) And uh, after I got settled, they mostly had me at the slime table, and I discovered nobody could hear a word you said, and that's when I started writing this song. (laughs) It's called The Cannery. (laughs) Come with me down to the cannery. We'll slop in the slime and let our minds spin free. Let's go down to PFI, where the coffee is free and the wages are high. Sean fish down at the cannery.
4: In this excerpt, Patty Simpson tells her sister Ikey Roundtree about the time two Russian visitors en route to St. Petersburg, Florida, ended up at her ticket counter instead.
8: Did I tell you about the Russians? No. Okay, well that one. It was around Christmas time, pretty close to Christmas time. Flights were very, very full anyway. And these two people got off the aircraft and everybody kind of cleared out of the terminal. We, it was our old, rinky dinky little terminal. And uh, anyway, you could tell that they were not um, Americans. They looked like they were from a foreign country. I don't know how. That comes out, but it seems to come out. Anyway, I looked at their tickets, and I could see that they were not in the right place. But uh, according to the tickets, they did, I'm trying to think, They came, I'm sure they came out of Moscow, and they went to um big city in Denmark. What is it? Copenhagen. Copenhagen. And from there, they went to New York City. And from there, their tickets read Seattle, Washington, and then Petersburg. Not St. Petersburg, just Petersburg, AK. So anyway, you know, they couldn't speak English. They didn't know where they were. They were absolutely just petrified. And they both came off the aircraft, and they had one little dinky hand carry. I mean, it wasn't even as big as most of us carry as a purse. And that's all they were allowed to take out of Russia. So I knew that uh, Deborah Volsky... Was working at um, the DOT, and he was from Russia, either Russia or the Ukraine. I'm not sure. Anyway, he could speak the language, so we went and got him. And he said, "Well, he couldn't quit work, you know, and go speak with these people. He had he had a job to take care of." And we says, "Well, you're gonna get, you're gonna help us out here because we don't know how to speak Russian, and they're just scared to death." So. We went and talked to the head of the DOT, which was Harry Merriam, and he was a real doll, and so he let Debra Volsky off, and he spoke to him and told him what had happened, and, and they wanted to take him downtown and go to the chamber commerce meeting because it was chamber that afternoon, or rotary, excuse me. Anyway, they absolutely would not leave the terminal building, and um, so they brought up smoked salmon and and uh, sandwiches, and some fruit, and coffee, and gave them a real nice lunch, and they were very thrilled, and uh, anyway, Tom Gustafson got on the horn, and called Seattle, they got him seats on the jet that afternoon to Seattle, and then from Seattle to Jacksonville, and from Jacksonville into St. Petersburg, Florida, so they, they got... Where they were going on the visas that they had, it said that they were not to travel outside of a 50-mile radius, which would have been St. Petersburg, Florida. So I don't know how they got to Petersburg, Alaska. We still don't know how they did that. Anyway, it, it was pretty darn interesting. And she uh, she gave me a, a little hand-painted egg, which I still have and I really treasure and I know uh, Tom got something, too, as a little gift. And I thought in that little dinky hand carry that she had, she she still had enough room that there was a little gift in there for us because we had helped them. Today so. it would have been easier for him to fly from Russia to Anchorage and continue on to St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> that would have been less uh, flying, probably. I, I guess so. Mm-hmm.
4: I wonder what their reaction was when they didn't see any palm trees.
8: They were very worried when they landed in Wrangell and they saw snow and no palm trees. Anyway, they probably thought they were in Russia again someplace. Probably. I don't know. But
4: anyway,
8: they... Maybe Siberia. Yeah, maybe they said Siberia. Anyway, that was one of the strangest things that that i had happened when when i worked up there the listening project is waiting for your story
4: contact the public library to learn more
2: thank you for joining us today this has been homegrown conversations a collaboration between kfsk and the petersburg public library Today's show will be archived as a podcast on the library's website at www.psglib.org and there will be a link at kfsk.org as well. And you can listen to each of these interviews in full on the library's website under Local Histories or The Listening Project. Thank you to KFSK and the Friends of Petersburg Libraries for making today's show possible.